listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. You slid into home base just in time, Bracken. Yeah? Yeah. It's a baseball analogy, and I don't know where you're going with it. Well, you were out there playing in left field with race brain. It oh, went yeah. long, and then you came sprinting home. I guess a uh, left field men wouldn't be sliding into home base, but so the allergies, analogy's already off. But you made it just in time for our recording. Yeah, you know how race brain goes. There's always another little add-on, and I finally had to text you and say, I'm going to be five to ten minutes late. I do miss it. I miss race brain. Race brain was very relaxed for me because I felt like I, my role was like I could chime in if I had something to add, but I wasn't necessarily involved with moving the conversation forward, which is a really nice position to be in. And I miss hanging out with you guys every week, so I do miss it, actually. It's terrible. There's always a spot waiting for you. I know, and someday I think I'll scoop that back up. But uh, um, question for you. Moving on from that. Yes. If somebody tells you that they have a hard time getting their heart rate up in a workout, Mm -hmm. do you take that as a sign that they are fit or they are fatigued? What do you think? And you know why I'm posing this to you, by the way, because it was an experience I had today and this weekend. We talked about it off mic. But what's your initial thought on that? I think it it depends on what type of person I know them to be. Because Mm -hmm. many times I hear that and my answer is just internally, it's because you're not trying hard enough. I just so many times hear it from people. I can't get my heart rate up. Yeah, because you're not trying. Everyone can get their heart rate up if they work hard enough, unless you're a fit, mentally resilient person like yourself. And now you're having trouble getting your heart rate up. Then there's something going on. Because even if I'm really fit, my heart rate rises if I run hard. So it's either you're not Mm -hmm. running hard or you're either sick, about to be sick, coming off of being sick or overworked or overtired. Like high heart rate can be a sign of those things, but so can low heart rate. Heart rate's confusing, isn't it? Cardiac response to effort. I, I bring it up because, so I have had a hard time getting my heart rate to, it doesn't move as quickly as it normally would since my 5K that I raced less than two weeks ago. Big output, hit a max heart rate of like 193, which I haven't seen in forever and 182 BPM. And then since doesn't seem like the heart rate wants to go anywhere, even with effort. And so that was the case on my Saturday. Um, I just did like a speed play long run. It wasn't supposed to be an elevated heart rate session, extended elevated. And then today I did an eight mile tempo and my metrics turned out okay, which is confusing. But like when I was mentally engaging, like I knew I was physically working, my heart rate was like five plus 10, five to eight beats per minute slower than normal. And it's been consistent now. And typically when I see that, I think the same thing. Either you're just not pushing hard enough and you need to like stop being a wimp. Or I don't know if you recall this back to one of the few poor races that uh, the famed OCR star Lindsay Webster had. And she wasn't having her best race. And she looked 
at the camera and the live coverage and it's like i can't get my heart rate to go anywhere because she was over fatigued and even in the race she couldn't access her top level um uh cardiac response and so i'm wondering if i need to slow down or if it's just like eh, maybe your something's a little off and i haven't been sleeping great and all that but um something to note guys that there is two sides to that coin like hard time getting your heart rate up in quality sessions well if you know you're mentally engaging it just won't go anywhere and you're feeling pretty crappy while doing so good sign you're over fatigued um but again on a recovery run a low heart rate when you're running easy can be a great thing it's like oh great my you know cardiac response and efficiency is great so it's it's a i'm probably just muddying the waters by bringing this up but I'm just wondering for myself right now. Well, it's part of the reason that advanced metrics are being used in the training world these days. Why, you know, blood lactate levels are a little bit more reliable than heart rate. Why core mm-hmm. temperature in hot races is more reliable than heart rate. Things like that. So heart rate's the everyman metric because it's very cheap to track. But yeah, there are issues. It's like when I went and did that Covance study where you get paid to be a, a lab rat when I was in college trying to save up for Lisa's engagement ring. Oh, and yeah. I was one or two heartbeats away from being disqualified for the study because my resting heart rate was 38 at the time or 36 it got down to. And it's like you get to 34, you're out because it's an unhealthy sign for the vast majority of the population to be that low. I was in my going into my fifth year of running collegiate track and field and had had a great summer of training and great fall. And so I was just very fit from a cardiac standpoint. But even like in the medical world, lower your heart rate, lower your heart rate. Also, low heart rate can be a sign that you're dying. So it's, heart rates have two sides of the coin. <laughs> now you bring up a good point. I, I think overtraining syndrome, and I'm not in, in fallen into that right now by any means, but I think overtraining syndrome when it comes to heart rate is a combination of two things if you're going to just like try to simplify it. And it is your heart rate tends to rise on you way too easy on recovery days. And you're like, why is my heart rate elevated on recovery days? But then on your quality sessions, when you go to push, you can't like access the top percentage points of your heart rate. It's like almost a double-edged sword. You're higher than you should be on recovery days and you're lower than you should be on quality days. It's like you've lost your range, so to speak. Um, Whereas like where I'm at, my recovery run metrics, heart rate's still really low at decent pacing. So I think it's just a blip on the radar. But if I were to see my recovery run heart rate really drifting up and then having a hard time accessing high heart rate in quality sessions, that'd be a, a very obvious sign that I would need to back off. So I don't know. Just thought as on top of mind, I figured we should, you know. At least talk it out a little bit. Well, we're answering Q&A questions today. And so getting your own question in there is just, it's we get to add some content and discuss our own issues. And this uh, reminds me of, do you remember back midsummer, I was having trouble with getting tingling in my extremities yeah. during hard workouts when I was doing incline treadmill work and I'm up with my head between the floor joists and it was just so hot and humid. And during anaerobic efforts, I started feeling lightheaded and getting tingly everywhere. Well, Alex Walker heard about that and messaged me and she said, hey, what I was told by my sports doc is that that's okay. It's a sign of something, she said, uh, but it's not that you're about to pass out unless you have a drop in blood pressure or heart rate. Like you can't pass out without a drop mm-hmm. in heart rate right beforehand that lowers your blood pressure and you you pass out. Said so, so if you're tracking your heart rate and you don't see your heart rate dropping, you can push through that. And you won't pass out. If passing out's your fear, and I had said that I was afraid I was going to pass out on the treadmill. 
because I was getting lightheaded and tingly in my arms. Uh, well, so she sent me that two days before that mile I ran on July 4th, where it was in the 90s and super humid. And at about 1,000 meters into that race, my arms and hands were getting real tingly. And I thought, okay, Alex, <laughs> we're going to find out today. And so <laughs> I just kept running with it, and there was no drop. And then I kept running and kept running, and I, I didn't pass out. But like, it started going full body tingly towards the end. But I just trusted uh, Alex's advice that, hey, if you're not seeing your heart rate drop, you can keep working. Bodies are weird that way. Like some scary signals can happen from time to time when you're working hard in extenuating circumstances that make you question, like, am I okay? It's really interesting how that happens. And then not one since. I thought you were like asphyxiating yourself with like carbon dioxide up in the rafters, just only breathing in your own exhalation up there, just wafting in it. But nope. Could be. Or any other things I'm expelling during workouts. <sighs> Don't even want to go there, Bracken. It's terrible on a treadmill, especially if your head's in the rafters. When you fart a really bad workout <laughs> fart, it just like... <laughs> it's like the air of the treadmill just cycles it right up and over the top of you and keeps in like this hamster ball of air and it just it's like it's been just delivered straight into your nose i don't know if you get that on um, well i don't have my head between rafters um and and i don't do that obviously ever so you know in a movie where they're trapped underwater <laughs> in like a car and there's just little bubble of air at the top and they just get their head up there uh, like, yeah, yeah yeah that's what the fart bubble is for me like any air that I have goes right in between the floor joists, the rafters up there and the treadmills. There's something about the air I'm <laughs> generating on the treadmill. It just keeps it there and just like paddle, like ping pong paddles me back and forth. <laughs> Hot air rises too. So that probably just wafts yep. straight up into the uh, olfactory there. Um, okay. Let's, that's a good transition into our first question. Just kidding. It's not a transition at all. I've got uh seven in queue here. I thought um, we have a number of topics we want to get to coming up, but uh, we didn't know how long we would have today because Bracken was a little tardy and then I have to go to the gym for clients. So I thought we'd tackle as many of these Q&A as, as we could. And sometimes we get long winded with our training Tuesdays. So this it's a good time. And I already feel bad. Um, mostly because the first question is regarding West Virginia Spartan race and that's past. So <laughs> getting a jump on 2024. Denise Hahn, and we can still address it, says, Hey there, question for TRP. With West Virginia coming up, I have never had a significant swim in a race. It looks long. Mm. Advice for how to train and prepare? Congrats on your Afton PR. So this was sent a while ago. What's your first thought on that? Uh, get in the water. It's like any other form of activity that the main thing you're going to gain right up front is better skill, technique, and efficiency. You just got to get in the water a few times and get the bad stuff out of the way. And then if you really want to prep for it, make that the compromiser in your compromise run session. 100 meter swim, half mile run. Repeat that a few times. It doesn't take many sessions. You won't become a great triathlete overnight, but it only takes like two or three sessions to be noticeably better. Yeah, I am. Um... I think the swim is one of those things that can make minutes difference. Like even in the top end of the elite men's or women's field, you'll see somebody with a swim that's 90 seconds faster than another person in West Virginia, for example. We're like, 
if you had to run over that distance, they'd be the exact same speed. And then they get to a swim and somebody gaps the other by 90 seconds. It's profound. So it's worth its time. Um, I think the biggest uh, barrier is freaking running with or running, swimming with your life jacket on and being used to having your gear and shoes on while doing so. I think the biggest thing to to what you said is to just get in the water and feel it out, but make sure you have a life jacket on. It's cinched tight. And even with your shoes on, it's a whole nother experience. So just so it's not new to you, you can learn your technique with that life jacket on. And for a lot of women, these life jackets run on the big side. So uh, even an oversized life jacket that's a little uncomfortable, as tight as it's pulled, it may still float up around your neck. Um, just being ready for that. So at least it's not new on race day. That's actually, I would say, an, an addition to what you mentioned. Yeah. And for years now, OCR has been life jacket mandatory for most races, specifically Spartan it is. And that's what this question was in reference to. And so not only is there... 30 to 45 seconds to be gained or lost on the swim easily. But there's another 10 to 30 to be gained in transitioning in and out of the vest and cinching it down. So the way I think you have to do it is you have the vest someplace prior to the water. And every rep you do, you have to put the vest on and tighten it down. In the first rep, leave it loose. Get in there, put it on, cinch it down. Then when you get out, cinch it a little tighter and then take it off and leave it overly tightened on the ground. So the next time you have to come in and adjust it another way. And if you do, let's say six by 800, you're going to get three reps in tightening it, three reps in loosening it, six reps in taking it off while moving. And you're going to get all of that wasted time out of the way because it is so fumbly to deal with if you've never touched it before. But as soon as you're used to what the protocol is, you cut a lot of time off. I agree. Working on that technique with with the jacket on. And then I also think that people underwork in the swim. I think uh, you can work as hard as you want. Your heart rate is still going to come down. You are going to pay the price dearly with disorientation when you get out of it. Like you're going to feel like crap when you get out of the swim. If you swim it hard, you're going to be like, oh my God, I got hit by a freight train. It's going to take you a minute or two to get your bearings. But I think the benefits outweigh the cost there. Uh, for me, it does. And so I think pushing instead of using it as recovery is going to save you potentially minutes. And because you haven't been taking impact during then, um, again, the transition from water to land is going to be rough, but it will pass. So my recommendation to my athletes is get out of the swim, walk that last few meters to get rid of the jacket, walk the few meters out and take your nutrition, time it so you can take it right out of the swim when you're kind of slow moving anyways, and then get back to work. I find that combo works really well. So point being, you can work hard in the swim, in my opinion. You can. And in that feeling of it being terrible coming out of the water improves so much with just like two weeks of practice. It really does. I did a, a probably two or three week block of basically brick workouts. There's compromise runs, but with swim as the compromiser. And I did the vast majority in my shoes whenever I could. And I ran a race that spring, probably six weeks later, and was so effective in uh, getting in and out of the water and while I was in the water compared to what I was at any other point. It just gets that really bad technique out of the way because swimming, it's, it's like a rowing or skier. You can be faster with less energy if your form improves. And so the less energy being smooth and efficient in the water gets you out able to run better. 100%. Um, next question. Chad Hillman, potential Q&A episode submission. 
Uh, I like this question. I like all these questions today, actually. They're good ones. Um, I'm training for slow Spartan ultra in November. Uh, and as a side note, it seems like a lot of people are eyeing slow as like an A race or season ender. So there's a lot of people in the San Luis Obispo uh, Spartan boat right now. Um, Chad says, I live at 4,500 feet of elevation with hills available to me and also have pretty easy access to mountains starting at 6,500 feet of elevation. Being that slow is significantly lower in elevation than either of these two situations I typically train at, should I mainly stick with my home base of 4,500 feet or would you see it as largely beneficial to add in sessions in the mountains? Slow isn't a mountain isn't a mountain course, but you guys say mountain hill training is speed training in disguise. So I expect the uphills and mountains can only help. But you've also said that people sometimes experience something of a letdown when they go from elevation to sea level. Counterintuitive to what one might expect. I'm pretty sure you've said that. And we have said that in our own word. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, my main question is whether I shouldn't worry too much about doing uphill at the higher elevation, or if you think the extra elevation training would help me specifically for this race. Great question. I'll start in reverse order with the altitude effect. Uh, Coming down from altitude is fantastic up until a point. And that that point is intensity. The more intense the race is, the more difficult it is for your system to adapt to the higher levels of oxygen saturation at lower altitude levels. So I would say that that number is somewhere around 30 to 40 minutes. Anything less than that, it becomes a very much more intense race, and then it's harder for your cardiovascular system, and you feel sluggish. Uh, You're not going to deal with that in an ultra. So uh, my first answer is that you'll be fine from that aspect. You're going to feel pretty fantastic most likely but the key is to avoid spiking early even in a 30 to 40 minute race if you slow play the race almost like a sea level athlete going up to altitude you do that coming down from altitude in an intense race your engine's going to be there you just have to give it a little extra time to warm up so just don't go crazy the first mile or two and you're going to be just fine and also 4500 feet i would put like that dividing line somewhere between five and six thousand feet where you're really up at altitude. Um, 4,500 feet is low enough that you can do pretty intense work and not feel the altitude to a crazy extent. It's still not easy, but I think you're you're in a safe spot for what you're preparing for. Uh, yeah, you took the words out of my mouth, you jerk. Um, yeah. That whole altitude to sea level situation gets more exacerbated. Like The shorter your race and the higher the heart rate expectation the harder people have transitioning. And sometimes it's just like they come down three to five days early and you're going to be completely fine. Then you can come from 7,500 feet and go race the mile at sea level. If you give yourself just that like three to five days, it seems like most of the pros do. Um, But when you go over extended duration, it is an ace in your pocket. You're going to be out there for five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 hours. Who knows? I don't know what your goal uh, or projected potential time frame is but uh as bracken said like i would say even like anything above a 10k ish like it does it's gonna help you and even if you feel sluggish earlier like oh it's sticky like i'm sticky today like your engine you're going that extra oxygen will come through in the middle and second half of that race and you're going to be eating people up so um yes stay don't worry about it like for your case it is uh, only a positive thing And even if you do overcook a little, like Bracken said, it is going to feel like crap, but you're still going to get yourself out of that hole because your engine, you're going to be so much 
more fueled with oxygen than typical that uh, it's still going to work itself out, I think. So um, you'll get your second wind in quotes no matter what, and you're going to feel pretty good. So I, I think you're fine. Go up in those mountains. Use them. Do everything you can. You're going to be just fine. Yeah. Agreed. And then in terms of hills, uh, that San Luis Obispo course is considered flat for a Spartan race. But if you put a a, a cross-country course there, people would come out of there saying, that was a, such a hilly race. And so it's all a matter of perspective. There are hills on course. Kirk, you've run there. There's, there was a hill where the top guys were struggling not to power hike at the top. Now, it's not outrageously long, and there's not an overabundance of them, but in an ultra, you're going to get much further away from the festival area, which means more chances to find more hills. So it's not pancake flat, and even if it were, keep getting in the mountains. Maybe add it, maybe move one of your workouts away from the mountains, but I don't see any reason to scrap your hill and mountain work. Yep, I agree. And I believe uh, the slow beast last year, um, their spring race had right around 2,000 feet of elevation gain in the beast. So you're still most likely getting over 4,000 feet of gain and loss, which for me, I got to prepare for that sort of gain and loss. So that's a mountain race in my eyes. But again, I live in the Midwest. Yeah, fourth. I mean, even if it's only three thousand, let's say they change the course a bunch, that's enough that you'd rather be a mountain runner coming down than a flatlander trying to find three thousand feet of running in you. Hundred uh, percent. Anything else you want to add to that one? Was there any, any other part of that question we didn't hit? Nope. Was I think it just we got hills it. and He's just wondering if and should he go play in the mountains up at sixty five hundred feet or not? And I say the answer is still yes. If that's what trips your trigger, hundred percent, still go. It's only going to pay off. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe within like three weeks of it, start moving down if you really want to tinker. Um, Scott Neth says, I understand you've had some stress fractures in the past. What does it actually feel like to get one? I've only ever had one running injury, runner's knee, which resolved quickly with rest. So I'm kind of in the dark with the pain I have now. It's an acute pain in my mid thigh and on my last run and extended up into the same side hip joint and was painful from the joint all the way down to the initial painful spot. Stretching seems to alleviate the pain for a few minutes, but it comes back fast. I can run through it, but the first few minutes are quite painful. And the pain is there all run long, especially on anything below below level. Any clues are much appreciated, and if this is a candidate for a Q&A, that's great too. Thank you. So first question, what does it actually feel like to get a stress fracture? Let's just compartmentalize the question i think that should be the first thing addressed we can speculate about what's got going on have you ever had a stress fracture i've never felt it no even of all your things over the years no stress fracture never well and it'll sound funny for me to say this but i was a very durable injury-free athlete for 28 years 29 years and even once it started it was freak things that started it out and then it was overuse soft tissue coming back always so no, all my all my issues have been soft tissue. I've never had a bone issue outside of breaking a bone through impact. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, I've had different experiences with stress fractures. Uh, most have been overuse where I knew they were coming. There was some warning signs. And then it I didn't pay now and I paid dearly later. And then one was a single run where I went from feeling completely fine to over the course of five minutes limp running to the course of walking home and voila I had a fracture in my fourth metatarsal so it can happen in a lot of different ways 
Um, but generally, you're going to have an idea. An area might be sore, sensitive to the touch. Generally, it's going to be, it's going to not feel well when you start a run. You're going to work it out as you run, and then it's going to be even more sore when you're finished. And then it's going to, you're going to get into that song and dance for a while. And then pretty, you know, after a couple runs or a week or two of like still pushing through, suddenly you go out for your run and that pain doesn't dissipate as you run. It starts to like get worse or you're like, it's definitely there and it's not going away. Um, that's how most of mine have progressed. And, you know, as, as a rule of thumb, I give athletes the green light to keep training. If, if they start to run and the pain goes away as you're running, green light to keep training. If you start to run and the pain doesn't get worse or better, it's a yellow light. Let's proceed with caution. And then if you go for a run and pain gets worse as you go, hard red light, stop. Typically, that's the fracture point where, you know, we're always dealing with aches and pain. Some random thing pops up and then goes away four days later and we don't even know what, what it was, right? But when you start to run and then it's like, oh, it's getting worse. I can tell it's worse now. And then after you cool down, you sit down for, you know, half hour, hour, and then you go to move again. You're like, oh, that does not feel good. I'm limping. My foot hurts or my tibia, my shin hurts. That's typically where it starts for me. And then I wait a few days. I try it again and it's the same. And I'm like, oh, crap, it didn't get any better in the last three days. I might have a bone issue. And that's the song and dance that has got me there like I think I've maybe had, let's say, eight to 10 stress fractures every single time, but one where it happened in a single run with no warning signs. So that's my preface to the whole conversation is you make a series of poor decisions. Typically, you're riding a line, riding a line, and then you realize, uh-oh, I wasn't riding the line. I crossed the line. And it gets worse as you continue on with a run. And then that's typically your sign that you might need to get things looked at. I don't know if that made sense or not. Mm -hmm. It does. Now, I've never felt a stress fracture, but I've broken, I've fractured two bones and I broke clean through one bone. And in all the years since, I've never once mistaken any of my other pain for bone. Like it just, all three of those breaks felt like bone. I don't know how to describe it other than they felt different than any muscle, soft tissue, cartilage, anything else. They were just a different ache. They were a different sharp. They were a different dull. It was just very different. So when I had my quadricep tendinopathy, it was in my quad deep in there, but it was certainly not bone. When I had meniscus, it was certainly not bone. When I had Achilles or like every area that I've had an issue now in the last five years, Every time, I didn't always know what it was, but I knew it wasn't a fracture. And so I would say by the reverse logic, if you wonder if it's bone, there's a high probability that it is. That's fair, actually. I can get on board with that logic. I will say from my own experience, my tibial stress fractures, shin splints turning into stress fractures, very acute. I'm like, it's that spot hurts. The size of a golf ball, maybe, at most. In my foot, when I've had three different fractures, it's radiated. It's been more confusing. It's like, oh, what is Feet that? Like it hurts. Yeah, or funky. But when it's been above the ankle, it's been pretty acute. So Scott asked, well, it's been radiating down my leg. Obviously, we first think of IT band syndrome immediately when he brings this up. Um, but I think he said radiated. Uh, up. I don't know if that matters to you. Not really, to be honest. When I've had IT band stuff pop up, it radiates from low up. But point being, um, typically it's been localized for me, but that's from the between the knee and ankle. I've never had a femur type fracture, which is way less common, possible, but less common. But 
Um, so who knows? I'm probably clouding the waters on this one a little too. I would just get it looked at earlier than later. Hmm. So stretching seems to alleviate the pain for a few minutes, but it comes back fast. I can run through it, but the first few minutes are quite painful. I, it sounds more soft tissue to me. clear anything. No, I, if I were to guess, if I had to guess, I would guess it's probably a soft tissue issue. If stretching alleviate, no stretching has helped a single stress fracture I have ever had in my <laughs> Can't life. Stretch a bone. It does not access anything. I mean, it. If anything, it might piss it off. So, um, I don't know, Scott. You're gonna have to follow up on this because I screenshot this on July 23rd, so we're like six weeks post this question. So I'll be curious uh, what your findings were. Anything? Anything else? Nope. No, sir. Okay. Um, let's delete this one. See ya, Scott. You're out of here. All right. Another one from Chad uh, Hillman, who asked the previous question prior to the most recent one. Another question for you. I'm really struggling to find this detail out regarding creatine. I want to get stronger, but I don't want to gain weight or grow in terms of volume, i.e. fill up my shirts more. I'm lifting heavy weight, low reps in order to not initiate hypertrophy. I understand creatine to be a great supplement for weightlifting. But is it solely for building new muscle or is it a key component in strengthening muscle as well? Can I take it and still lose fat, get stronger, and potentially drop in weight? Or is the best possible outcome a maintenance of the weight I'm at under this program? Should I just forego creatine supplementation? To answer the specific yes or no's, uh, it's not just for growing muscle faster. Like it's also, It is also for appearance. You retain a higher amounts of water. Your muscles just look bigger, quicker. Uh, it, as far as I know, doesn't help in actually strengthening the like the power output. It doesn't amplify the power output of the muscle you build. Kirk, you might be able to correct me. I might be wrong on that, but I've I've never read anything that says the muscles you build are any more dense or uh, higher in contraction rate or. Uh, contraction power than muscles built without creatine. It's more for putting on mass quick, but it also has a performance component to it in anaerobic events, especially uh, twitchy events, things that require the anaerobic system and in particular phosphocreatin bonds. It can help with those type deals. Um, yeah, you're not wrong. I'll add in addition to what you said, but um, you set me up nice. The, the way creatine works is this. We don't need to get into the specifics, but what it does is it basically allows an infiltration of energy, let's call it into your cells and muscle fibers, that when you get to, you think you're at your last rep and you're like, oh, maybe I got one more. And you're like, it went. And you're like, well, maybe I have one more. Let me try. And you charge up and you go for another bench press. And you're like, shit, that one went too. I thought I was at failure. And somehow you squeak out two more reps than you would have previously not on creatine because the way it fuels the cell's energy systems in your muscles. Thus, if, if you take creatine and do nothing, all you're going to do is gain three pounds of water weight. And then when you stop taking creatine, you're going to pee it out over the next few days and you'll be right where you started. The way creatine works is it allows you to work just a little more if you're willing to meet the creatine halfway and push your body hard. So you get a few extra reps in, maybe able to use just a little more weight because of the energy provided in the cell structure itself, thus gaining muscle mass due to being able to do more work. That's how you actually grow on creatine. So to answer your question, 
it's designed to let you do more, which would in fact put on muscle in my opinion. If you gain five pounds mm -hmm. of weight on a creatine cycle, you stop, you're going to pee three pounds out and you're going to be left with two. That's a very typical protocol on a creatine cycle. Um, so with that said, I think if you are not looking to put mass on, leave it alone. That's what I think. Hunter McIntyre goes through his cycles of using it when he's bulking, and there's a purpose there. You want to put on mass to be a better hybrid athlete because you're not big enough? 100% toss it in. But if that's not your goal, as far as Bracken's following that up, as far as like long-term power production or explosive power, like you may see temporary gains from it. It's probably going to subside after you stop anyways. So um, I don't see the juice being worth the squeeze there. Hopefully that was a comprehensive enough answer. It is. Uh, and, and to add on top of that, some people respond differently to creatine. It's not crazy to gain five or six pounds of water sure. either. Not everyone will. But again, if, if mass is not your goal, there's really no use for it for you. You can tinker. You can take, instead of the full, what, uh, five milligrams, you could take two and a half every day and you're going to be just fine. You don't necessarily have to do a big loading phase to reap the benefits. But you're going to gain weight with it. Have you done uh, cycles of creatine? I did only in college and post-college yeah. when I was trying to put on weight. And how did it go for you? I gained weight very quickly. Uh, I did it for the first time because I was reading up on some endurance benefits of it. And then I did it a second time to when I started my high rocks build. Um, that block, I put on 11 pounds in 11 weeks, which is well a very rapid amount of weight gain without really seeing a noticeable increase in body fat. Uh, and then... I retain a lot of water weight with it. So it's 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 deceptive also in terms of how much you're improving because mm -hmm. it's real easy to look at the scale and be like, I'm packing on so much muscle, but you're not necessarily putting on what you think you are. Um, th there's, there's a reason it's not illegal in sports. There's a reason that WADA allows it is because it's not a game changer. WADA <laughs> doesn't allow things that are going to be night and day difference in the way you feel or perform. So is it helpful? Yes. Much like, uh, not even to the same extent, but caffeine's helpful. They even ban caffeine mm -hmm. at a certain point. So the effects that you're getting are useful, but they're not going to change you as an athlete. They're going to shortcut your process slightly, depending on what your intended process is. Yep, I agree. Uh, and not that we need to go too far down this rabbit hole, but when I was in college and pretty sick, I got prescribed testosterone uh, replacement therapy, androgel, because um, my numbers were so low. And I gained like 12 pounds of muscle on that, and I wasn't weightlifting. Like, they just put the right amount of testosterone in my body, and I start my body started like produce, had the right hormone in it, and I was hardly doing any strength work. Um, that's how powerful testosterone replacement theory was for me. I was 22 or something at the time. Uh, creatine, you take creatine and don't do anything, nothing's going to change other than a little water retention. So to say right. it's not a performance-enhancing drug is an understatement compared to what a performance-enhancing drug would actually do to the body. Just a side note on that. Yeah, I was doing a 75-minute session for a four-day split each week on top of a Metcon work and sled work during this time to put on 11 pounds total. I was, yep. I was working out a lot. I was lifting heavy every day. Well, if I was your coach, I would say no. That'll be my bookend on it. Yeah. I don't recommend it to any of my athletes unless they have a specific purpose. 
almost anything it's like when in doubt do it without it yeah but if mass is needed and strength is needed there's a strong argument for it but it does not it's not what you're outlining so i do want to to keep this open for a second because i think this is important the other side of the coin which is if you start anything removal of that leaves you feeling depleted in some way either physically or mentally and very rarely do people consider that ahead of time even something as simple as coffee like try to get the average coffee drinker to remove coffee from their week like what are they going to feel like now you take something that is paired with a physical appearance change and suddenly you might need to keep taking creatine as long as you want to maintain a certain physique or look and body dysmorphia is a very real thing and it comes on all of a sudden with no warnings you don't have to have like a a medical prehistory of this it just is there one day and you didn't know about it so anything that you're going to do that's going to amplify the way or change the way you look if either losing weight or gaining weight be be very comfortable with the potential complications of what happens when I no longer use this and I start to look different. You have to make peace with that early on. Otherwise, you might just find yourself in a in a place you didn't want to be. Yeah, it's a good point. You'll hear, um, I know a few steroid users um, mm-hmm. loosely. Well, being in the gym scene, it's like once you start, like you are basically committed for life because the come down from that is so dramatic for these people that it's not worth it. It's not worth it to come off. You want to shrink 20 pounds and look loose in your skin and feel like a, you know, frail POS compared to your previous self. It's a very real thing. Those people go through, um, after they've made that, what I would consider poor decision, but, um, all right, ready for the next one. So ready. Jim Pepsinski says Q and a, my daughters run cross country at their high school and the program is neglected as you can imagine. What's been on my mind is how do we newly formed booster club work to grow this program for the best experience for the current team and to grow the team for the future. This is difficult, right? We both worked Mm -hmm. in high schools. We both, you know, as coaches and and I taught as well. And I I did this in a school with um, the high schools each had 2000 students. And I did this in a school where the high school had 500 some students. So I've seen small town. I've seen relatively large city. Uh, the problems exist everywhere. It's it's tough because it's hard to address this without offending, alienating, or emasculating the existing coach. So I think the easiest possible thing to do is get a good assistant in there, even someone that's just there to run with the team, build rapport, establish goodwill with the coach, and then start making suggestions goodwill suggestions coming in with an iron hand uh it's it's a cause for issue but but first of all i think just a conversation skirting the edges of this territory with the coach just finding out you know having someone in a situation where they can say hey so what, what what's your training program like what's your theory of training for these athletes and then trying to find out how fertile is ground here for some sort of outside intervention or help if the coach is really walled off then the answer is the season might be a wash but you get a new coach as soon as possible but getting someone involved in the program who is a people person who can seamlessly start moving in and and having a a bit of influence on what's happening there i think that's step number one yeah and it sounds like maybe they do have their hands on some of this you know it seems like maybe he feels like they could be involved with recruitment let's call or satisfaction with the 
the program. Um, I have very concrete thoughts on this, like strategic thoughts on this. Um, Three things come to mind. First, getting your hands on the uh, middle school programs that feed into high school. If you can start then, like my high school coach was the middle school coach as well for the track season we had there. Um, and he started planting seeds even before high school. A lot of times it could be a little too late. So, um, he had his hands on the middle school program as well. And that could also extend to the booster club. And he was in very close touch with all the physical education teachers. He set up an appointment with them, asked to talk to him and said, like, who looks, who ran the mile? Well, like who looks good? That's how I got recruited in the first place. I ran a quick mile in my gym class and suddenly one of the, uh, the, the coach got my number, which I don't know how legal or illegal that is. Or he came and talked to me at school and said, Hey, I heard you ran a really fast time in gym class. That's fantastic. I'd love to talk to you about coming out for the team. Made me feel really well. And so recruiting through the physical education teachers, um, is huge. And then also coaches of other sports, um, especially spring sports where the athlete doesn't have anything going on in the fall. So starting with the gym teachers and the coaches of other programs go a really long ways. Um, the second thing was making the underclassmen feel wanted by having people in the upper class reaching out to them. That was a big part, almost like a college recruitment cycle. Like we had upperclassmen that made me feel wanted. Like they were good level-headed upperclassmen that called me, said, hey, we'd like to invite you to the run in the summer, the summer run program, which I did. Still chose soccer, came back because the guys were nice and cool. It's like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to run. So I think starting with the FIAD teachers, the other coaches, just introducing and saying, hey, would really love to like know if any of these kids seem to have an interest or a good endurance potential. And then, um, really trying to like go out of your way to get the upperclassmen involved with anybody they can think of. They don't even need to be good. You need to start with numbers. If you can get numbers, the talent will come eventually, but numbers are the first thing. So like those would be my starting points with that. I like that. And then in terms of actually, building like a training program for them? Because I guess I heard it from that was you read it. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. I heard like there's not much direction with how the coaching or the coaching's inappropriate in terms of training stimulus for the athletes. I think the first thing to remember with middle school and high school is that it is better to be under-trained and over-loved than it is to be over-trained and under-loved. If a student athlete is taken care of emotionally and physically, then running will come. And it may not come in success in high school, but they may be more likely to just exercise throughout their life and find it later. But the worst, I think the worst case scenario is a coach who knows all the X's and O's and doesn't care beyond that and just overworks kids and crams intervals down their throat. Yeah, you're going to have a few eggs that don't break against the wall and you're going to have some success. And there's examples of this all across the country, but you're ruining running for kids. So I'd rather see an underperforming program that loves the kids and makes the kids love running. So the first step from a performance side is to make it enjoyable and to ensure health. And then to move forward, there's a million steps you can take from there. But right away analyzing, is this a healthy program that sucks at running? Or is this a program that's just training way too much as unhealthy or too hard or just inappropriately? Yeah, I could not agree more with that. And I think just layering on top of that, like... One, half the kids probably aren't aware it exists in the school, too. Like, making them feel wanted and welcome. 
be happy to pick up the rejects that didn't make the soccer team. Hey, coach, who didn't make the soccer team? Can I get the list of those kids' names? I want to personally reach out to them and see if they'd like to join the cross-country team. Things like that go such a long way. I got rejected by one team, yet this coach is asking me or this booster club is asking me to be a part. Make them feel included and wanted. That's all kids want to feel. Find a way to reach them and let them know you want them there. Like that's a special thing for a lot of the young kids. And so for me, that's how it was. And I was scared shitless. I had a lot of performance anxiety. I was not excited to do the running thing because I felt so stressed and pressured. But when I felt welcome, and that kept me from joining early in middle school. And then when I felt welcomed and encouraged constantly, it's what pushed me over the edge. And so I think that's just a big piece of the equation, especially with the younger kids. For sure. Yeah. I have a question, Kirk, that can kind of build from that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's going to take me one second to find it, but it just reminded me of this. You know what? I'm not going to find the question, so I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. Sure. There's a listener who has taken control of their training and really worked and improved, and they're in grad school now, I believe, and just made their walk down and made the cross-country team. Heck yeah. Awesome, right? Said, But here's the issue. I've been following the principles you have been... uh, have been drilling home to us all the way through COVID and afterwards, and we're not following any of this on the cross country team. <laughs> every easy run, every aerobic run is too hard. All the threshold work, we do threshold work, but it is above my threshold. The coach doesn't seem to want to talk about it or hear about it. Um, what What do I do here? And this is the nightmare scenario for both you and for the coach. No Mm. one, no one is winning here right now. So how do we go about fixing this, Kirk? What do you do as an athlete? It takes a lot of cojones and vindication. We had a couple guys in college who's like, I just need to run slower on days that aren't workout days. And they did. The two would drop way off the back and do their thing. Mm -hmm. There's two of them and they had a buddy system because they somehow talked about this and it worked. So like to fix the system, that comes from the coach. If the coach isn't highly directing, not going to happen. But I think you just stand your ground and say, I need to go easier on my recovery runs, coach. I think it's important. I'm feeling fatigued for my quality sessions. And hopefully if the coach, if an athlete came to me and said that, I'd be like, of course, like worth the experiment at least. So I think it comes from the athlete initiating it and just being old. If you're the lone wolf off the back, nobody's going to care if you show up and perform at your quality session or have a good race. They're still going to love you for it. I promise. They're going to be happy you're there. Even if you're, even if you're, I don't know, being the neglected guy off the back. Like, I don't know. I, that's me in my tenureship saying that in college, it's very hard to do. Right. Now I ran into this. Uh, I overtrained at the beginning of college because I raced everything and I had something to prove and a spot to earn and all of that. And then as a fifth year senior, I went back out for cross country to try to improve my track and field prowess. And I ran into issues with this on day one. They had a tradition on, let me flash us all back to my freshman year of college down at Campbell university. There was the first day of practice, 16 mile run. 16 miles first day, 6 a.m. It starts and it's basically a hang on as long as you can and then you get cracked and then you drop off and then you try to finish. And it was just like, 
a sorting hat from Harry Potter, but for running. Like, this is where we find out who's who on the team. And that freshman year, I went all in on that. And I had one of the hardest last six miles of any run my entire life that day. It was so terrible. So now flash forward to my fifth year of college, and they have a 10-mile run. First day of cross country, and everyone's talking about how they're going to hammer it. But the next day, we have like six by 1,000 or something. And I said beforehand, I'm like, just so you know, I'm not going with you guys. No offense, but I want to be able to run the workout well. And it didn't go over well, Kirk. In the entire season, I dogged the easy runs and ran the best I could on quality days. And early on, there was a big uh, clash between me and a few of the athletes and the coach for a bit because it was seen as I was sandbagging the runs in order to do well on the workouts, which in a way is correct. Sandbagging's not the correct term. Yeah, sandbagging's not the correct right. term. And the intent is skewed a little bit. I wasn't I wasn't dogging it on the easy runs in order to show people up and look impressive on the workout days. I was running at an aerobic level on my easy days so that I could get the most out of my quality days and then recover and do it again. By that point, I was five years into college running. I was nine years into my running progression of actually training. I don't really count middle school. And I was starting to have a grasp of how things work. And the coach didn't love it. They saw it as, here's an arrogant mid-distance runner who lifts too many weights and doesn't want to put in the hard work day in and day out. So, and that, that, that is a very common response to an athlete who says, I, I don't want to run this hard on these days. It's listen, you have to put in the grind. This is how running works. You got to grind and grind and grind and your first year is not going to be good. I don't believe that needs to be the case. And I didn't back then either. And so there was some friction on the team of people who felt like, well, yeah, he ran six by by mile at this pace today, but only because he ran so slow yesterday. Like we all ran six minute pace yesterday and we still did that. It's not a competition, everyone, but they see it that way. So you do have to be very careful the way you talk to the coach about it. You have to come in with a, a very gentle like peaceful demeanor. She's saying, I, I'm not acting like I know more. I just know this about my body right now. I'm going to break down if I do more. It's not that I don't trust you. It's just that I I know myself enough that if you want to get something out of me this day, I've got to have this limit here. And my goal over time is to work into faster. I give them little carrots, but early on, they will take it as a personal affront to them that you don't want to do that. So trying to avoid negatives like this training doesn't work and your workouts are too hard. You have to frame it around what your body can handle versus what they're doing uh, incorrectly in your eyes. Yeah. And I think that culture has changed. I want to believe in the faith of humanity in the endurance space that that culture has shifted a bit at a lot of programs, not all. Mm-hmm. I would love to be a fly on the wall in the majors, like uh, Stanford, uh, Arizona, um, you know, things like that. Just knowing, because we get a lot of like, sometimes they've let us in on their training. Like, here's Nico Young's training camp, and it's like he ran a seven fifteen pace today, and their recoveries. Like, I think some of the programs get it. A lot of them, I think, yeah. do upper end. I think where it gets lost is. NAIA, community college, division three, high school. Yep. That's, that's where that culture here. is way more. Yep. I think in the high end programs, I think, I think we're past it for the majority, majority, but that's pure speculation. 
I don't know. Yeah. And so having having burned a few bridges, I've always had a little bit of an issue with authority I don't respect. But who doesn't? I, I don't react su- super well in some of those situations, and especially at 20, 21. I wasn't uh, the refined, hairless gentleman you see before <laughs> you now. And so uh-huh. I was too prickly in some of my interactions. And then I erred on the side. Like Sometimes I played up that I was dogging it on runs. When I was mad at people, I would I would give a different attitude back. And so making sure, like there are two ways to run slow. You can run slow while supporting your teammates and being real humble, and then you can flaunt it in people's faces if they try to pressure you on it. And so you avoid doing any of those prickly things. You prove that you're a great teammate, a team player, part of the program, and you just work the best you can. But uh, avoid. you almost have to be a martyr, mm-hmm. right? Early on, you just have to avoid any show of anything that could be misinterpreted. And I certainly didn't do that. And I would I would take back several of my interactions on the cross-country team that year. Because I didn't give myself any ability to have tolerance for things that I didn't agree with. And I could have picked my battles much more wisely. Well, and back then, and maybe it still happens, we were never really explained the why very often. It was like, you you just go and do it. Like, you saw an 8 to 10 mile run on Monday, and you know you had a quality session the next day. And it literally said 8 to 10 miles for the mid-distance crew, 10 to 12 for the long-distance crew six to eight for the short distance crew and it said no no parameters and nobody ever said like go easy that wasn't a conversation Mm -hmm. but i will say when i did have a year of eligibility left and i went on scholarship to university of milwaukee for grad school uh, which i ended up dropping because of health conditions the same thing i was just talking about earlier in the episode uh their culture was great like dudes chilled on their easy runs Mm. it was a race every time quality sessions happened i mean it was a race but the in-between maybe because we were so smoked, we're slogs and there was no expectations on them. So I did see a balance there, I would say. Um, and at Oshkosh too, uh, nobody, a few guys were workout kings and, you know, but for the most part, like we weren't racing each other all that much. So maybe I got lucky, but Campbell sounds pretty toxic that way where you had gone. That was Campbell. And then this was Whitewater, my fifth year. Oh, okay. Both places it happened. So, and it's just, it's one of those things where everyone, like you said, they all have their reasoning and very few people share it and share it well with each other back and forth. There's not a free flow of information in non-great programs. Right. Here's what we're doing and why, and do we have questions and how are you feeling? Never did I get pulled into the office and be like, how are you feeling with these workouts? How are these hitting you? Right. Are you, are you sleeping? How is it balancing with your course load? (laughs) None of this. It was, we were called in my freshman year and we had to go over our notebook with them. And he looked at miles per week and he looked at paces of workouts. And then we moved from there. That doesn't take talent. His secretary could have done that with us. And she would have provided the same level of coaching that he provided, but with a whole lot less cussing and snark and personal Mm -hmm. attacks. And we didn't go over why, or it was just what. And if you're running into that, I forget the gentleman's name. I feel for you, and you're probably one of the oldest on the team if you're a grad student. You're just going to have to be the mature one and navigate it with grace until they come around. And if they don't, this is your, like, on-the-job training. You're an intern right now. Your boss is going to kind of shit on you, and that's just you take it and understand that when I am in the position later, I will not be this way. And it might not even be on the coach. Coach might not even know this is going on, right? Like, it could just be, like, the energy amongst the, the boys, 
where they're like, it just turns into a dick swinging contest every run. And coach doesn't really know what's going on because he's not out there running those recovery runs with him. Um, We have two questions left and we got 10 minutes at most. So I'm going to get to him. Okay. Okay. This one is from Brandon Waters. Hey, Kirk, have a question for you and Bracken, possibly a Q&A. You guys have recently talked about ways to sort of hack workout stimulus to make up for volume shortcomings due to training time. Do you guys have any techniques to hack the warm-up for a quality session? I have three kids and a full-time job, etc. I don't always have the time to hop and skip around like a rabbit, do dynamic stretches, movements, and then do a 20-minute warm-up run before I get into a quality session, especially during the week. <laughs> hop around like a rabbit. Do you have any ways shortcut... Any ways shortcut to shortcut, he means this process so one can properly warm up to avoid injury and still have sufficient time to get a good amount of quality work in. 45 to 60 minute window approximately. There you go. Floor is yours, Bracken. Okay, I'm going to give you the, uh, the, the haughty coach's answer first, which is if you don't have time to properly warm up, you don't have time for the workout and you need to do it at a different time. Like a pro camp wouldn't do the workout if they didn't have time to properly prepare for it. That's my haughty coach's answer, Kirk. What do you feel about that? I feel like there's a major but coming, so why don't you just get to it? Well, but we're not pro runners, and we're not all here to Mm -hmm. maximize every single ounce and gram of our potential. And there is a reduced version of everything that is acceptable. And so I've talked about on here before, I have my five-minute warm-up routine that I have had to use at a few races when I was late or when the start got changed. Yes, you can do it. However, the slower you can make the workout, the better. So if you have 45 to 60 minutes and you don't have time to get fully warmed up, I wouldn't do an intense speed session as much. And if I was going to, Instead of doing, let's say it was 20 by 200, every single one sub 30, I might start out with a 10 minute threshold rep and then rest three minutes and then do 10 by 200. Now that I've used the first rep to get myself loose. And that's an over exaggerated version of it, but you can also design a workout that the first rep or two is part of the warm up. That is an easy way to do it. Also, keep in mind it's hard to hurt yourself uphill. Spend those five minutes getting your calves and Achilles really loose and good, and then you're taking the pounding out of the equation. So yeah, there are ways around it. You could have, these are the three things I have to do to be ready to run and just accept that my first rep's going to suck, so I'm using it as part of the warm-up. need to give me 10 minutes. Um, I agree with all that. Uh, I really actually very much agree and like the treat your first few rounds as a progression into the run. Your goal is to run seven-minute Seven minute miles and you have five by a mile plan. Well, maybe you go seven thirty, seven fifteen, seven, seven, whatever's left. Don't cook too hot too early. Let yourself allow yourself some grace with the first few reps. I couldn't agree more with that in an abbreviated warm up. Uh second, uh ten minutes. Overdress. You're driving home from the office. You got the heat on, even though it's summer, the air conditioning not on, you got butt crack sweat going, your pits are pitting out, and you're uncomfortable in your car already. You get out, you put your clothes on, you're already overheated and hot and craving the air conditioning in your house, good. Then get out, give me five minutes of running, a little bit of a pickup progression, start easy and slow, just ratchet down for five minutes, slightly, just gradual. Finish with three minutes of dynamics, high knees, butt kicks, A skips, B skips, whatever you can give me. And then take a minute or two to let the heart rate come back down and then get into your session. I think that can get you 90% of the way there. And then you combine that with 
Bracken's suggestion of easing into your first few reps. And I think you're going to be injury averse fairly well. That would be my, my objective way I would do it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Pare it down to what must be done. You need range of motion and you got to get your heart rate up a little bit. Do those two things and then move into it. The first rep is the least important of the workout. From every standpoint you could look at it, it's the least important. So use it as part of the warm up. Yep. Last question. One of my athletes, uh, Jason West. Jason West brought this up in an email check-in this last week. And it says, uh, this week made me think of a question for the podcast. Is a race like Killington one on the climbs or on the descents? Killington is coming up here for those of you not aware in like a week and a half. It's a major race in the Spartan National Age Group Series. It's also the North American champ. So it's a big race. It says, is a race like Killington one on the climbs or on the descents? In other words, you have a world-class climber, but mediocre descender racing, a mediocre climber, but world-class descender. Who takes it and why? And I love that question. Which one wins out? Oh, I just want to say yes. You have to be able to do both because I don't think we have an example of someone who is mediocre on one winning, but I guess I'm going to say climbing. I think you can gain more time uphill than you can lose downhill on these races. Uh, but as I say that, I'm not sure. I guess the difference between walking and running uphill is bigger than the difference between running downhill and bombing downhill in most of these races, but I guess give me the climber. I'm not happy about it. I don't like this choice. That's why it's a good question. Yeah. Um, I take the descender. <laughs> okay. Partially to play devil's advocate. You're not wrong. We saw Johnny <laughs> Partially do to play devil's advocate. Right. Um, I think a good descender has an arrow in their quiver that equates to resistance to impact. And I think the first half of the race, I would want to be the climber for sure. I think in later mm -hmm. stages, the descents become astronomically more vital and your ability to go uphill afterwards is also vital. So I'm assuming a lot by saying the person who is good at downhill also can handle the damage from them better than the uphiller. That's a big assumption. If that's the case, I like the odds in the back half of the race for a descender, but certainly not early. It's also a personal bias of mine where I feel like on the national scene, I'm a very, I'm a just above average climber, but I think I'm closer to the top on the descent. So I think mm -hmm. I have a little personal bias here as well, but it's all about that back half. What is your body going to do in the back half? And for me, I think I'd want to be able to handle the descents, do them fast, efficiently. So maybe I can still use more percentage of my climbing on the back half. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, Bracken. Well, you're not wrong. And my example of Johnny is bad because Johnny is a plus climber too. He's not a mediocre climber. Right. In fact, he outclimbed most of the field that day by the second half of that race. So, oh, I think the, the real answer is that it's the person who rides the limit of both that wins out. If you're a strong descender, sometimes the tendency is to overwork your descents and then you trash your climbing. Early on, you overwork the descents. If you're a strong climber, sometimes you know that and you overwork your climbs and you're not a great climber in the second half. So what you can't do is ruin yourself by leaning too far into it. So it's the person who does, who instead of goes superb and mediocre, it's the person who's a plus, like above average to the highest of their version without costing the other that's going to win out. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can't pick it, Kirk. I think that's, I think you're exactly right. Uh, which one, like the person who one doesn't take away from the other too much. I climb so well and hard that my downhill afterwards, I end up 
gathering myself so I can't run it fast or I downhill so hard that I'm so smashed I can't climb afterwards I think you're right I think it's the person who manages the far end of both that's what I I think you're right there it's just like how do you define that all right I will take a stance they give me so much crap on race brain for always hedging my bets I'm going to say this on a course that is technical the descent wins out see it too many times in golden trail like these runnable cart paths you got to be able to fly uphill but if you add weather and or technicality to a course, you can make up more downhill than you can make up uphill. Because uphill climbing, your engine's your engine, whether it's, you know, technical, smooth, in and out, it's the same. But your descending is not the same. So, yeah, give me the technical descender. And at Killington, they have the ability to make it gnarly descending. So give me the descender. But these, but to your point, he has to be descending in the second half. You have to have it late. Yep. I think differentiating between the two types of terrain is probably where we should have started. So I'm glad we got there eventually. Um, also, I have to go. So I think we're going to have okay. to just sign off, Bracken, looking at the clock. Holy smokes, it snuck up on me. Any parting words for our wonderful listening audience? Thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend or week, whatever day this is. Tuesday. We'll see you for a Friday episode. Mm-hmm.